0: This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters Kendra Graham, Leanne Gwazinski, Sarah Demetritus, Bella, Mary Corbett, Monique harris Pixato, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Mandy Booty, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Chantelle Oliver, Valerie Jacobson, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, and Craig Williamson.
1: Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia.
0: So today's episode is an episode that I was going to do two years ago. Okay. And then, at the last minute, decided to do an episode on Zenobia instead. Oh, okay. However, a few months ago, I got a message from one of our fans, in fact, one of our patrons, Bella, asking if I would do an episode on Lakshmi Bai. Ah. And I suddenly realized, all right, maybe it's time to bring back Pam Toller. Cool. And do the episode that we didn't end up doing. That was so close... That needs to be done. Yes. Because this is absolutely a story that needs to be told.
1: Fantastic.
0: I'm Olivia Mickle,
1: And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Much like
0: Zenobia, this woman is not forgotten. Mmm. In India... Lakshmi Bai is a national hero. Cool. But she's very under-remembered everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very excited to introduce listeners to her.
2: My name is Pamela Toller. I'm the author of Women Warriors: An Unexpected History. And Lakshmi Bai, the Rani of Jhansi, is one of the first women warriors who I learned about in any detail. So in some ways, she's one of the foundations on which that book rests. Pamela Toler, of course, the author of
0: the amazing book Women Warriors Mm -hmm. and lots of other great books, and our guest on our earlier episode on the Syrian Queen, Zenobia. Zenobia. So without further ado, let's meet Lakshmi Bai.
2: Lakshmi Bai was the widow of Raja Gangadhar Rao Nawalkar, who was the ruler of a small South Asian kingdom known as Jansi. And Jansi was a client state of the British East India Company and had been since 1803. Now,
0: before we go any farther, I think we need to talk about the British East India Company. Ooh. Because I think if you don't understand the East India Trading Company, this whole story is very confusing. I feel like you probably know a lot about (laughs)
1: what's (laughs) happening here. (laughs) I have lectured on it many times.
0: So I'm going to let you explain to us <laughs> in the briefest possible terms, what the heck is the East India Trading Company and why is a
1: trading company involved? Oh, my. Oh, my, my. Okay. So you want a, a complete history of the East India Trading Company and British occupation of India in two minutes or less? In 45, yes. In in, in six minutes or less. Yeah. Six minutes. Luxury. I can, <laughs> I can do it in two. Once upon a time, well, not once upon a time, specifically in the 1600s, (laughs) a trading company was formed at the golden age of seaborne capitalism, and they (laughs) said, why don't we get rich by sailing to India and planting tea plantations there, bring it back to Europe, sell it here, make millions. So that's the plan. So it's just a capitalistic endeavor. Nothing Mm -hmm. whatsoever to do with the British government. They take over giant chunks of land in southern India, and over the centuries, their prominence, their power, their influence, their evilness, grows and grows (laughs) until (laughs) they dominate. It's piecemeal, but they dominate giant chunks of India. They completely suck. Well, the... The CEO, so to speak, of the East India Trading Company, super sketchy guy, like like classic movie villain. Oh, yeah. I'll just go straight up say he's evil. He's like sadistic oh, and horrible, yeah. horrible. The worst. The worst. <laughs> so the East India Trading Company continues in its horrible, oppressive and evil ways. I think... Uh, comparison that we can wrap our mind around is something like the virginia company that founded Mm -hmm. jamestown or like the plymouth colony you know these are just independent groups of people that are just sailing to another part of the world and just saying we're here and we're in charge and because (laughs) they have resources and money and weapons and and mostly india is not united at all Mm-hmm. Not in no way, shape, or form. And so they play different groups off of each other and make alliances in order to become the top dog. Perfect. Thank you. You're
0: welcome. And it is in exactly one of those scenarios of building alliances mm-hmm. with local rulers that Lakshmi Bai ends up in an impossible catch-22 situation. Mm. Jhansi is pretty constantly going to war against these other rajas mm. in nearby kingdoms. And so, like many others, they made an alliance Aha! with the East India Trading Company. Mm-hmm. Now,
2: basically what that means is that Gungadir Rao and his predecessors gave up a piece of their independence in exchange for getting protection from the British East India Company against other South Asian rulers. In practical terms, that meant that he had a British political advisor assigned to his court who wielded a lot of political and financial power. And he also had East India Company troops stationed in Jhansi. Ostensibly, they were there for Jhansi's protection, but they're also a two-edged, literally a two-edged sword in this case, because they're also a way of keeping the ruler in line.
0: As Pam Toller points out, it quite quickly goes from a protection agreement to a protection
1: racket. Yeah. Like any good mafia, we cannot be held responsible for what (laughs) might happen to you should you fail to pay. It's a good old-fashioned shakedown.
2: Mm -hmm. And that client relationship is what drives Lakshmi Bai's story. She and Gangadir Rao only had one child and it did not survive infancy. So several months before he died, the Raja arranged to adopt a distant cousin, a five-year-old boy, to be his heir. And then he made a will that named that boy as his heir and named Lakshmi Bai as regent. And he took all the steps. To make sure that was legal and binding, including giving all the documents to the British political agent in his court. So there should have been no problems with the succession. You know, adopted heirs were actually a common practice in the South Asian, what the British called princely states, a term with all kinds of colonial stuff packed into it. And, in fact, Gungadir Rao and his predecessor had both been adopted heirs.
0: But there's a new governor from the British government
2: Uh in these princely states. His name was Lord Dalhousie. And as soon as he arrived, he began a really aggressive policy of annexing previously independent Indian states on grounds that basically are pretty flimsy. And one of the policies he used to do this was called the Doctrine of Lapse. The British had already claimed the right to approve successors to the thrones in Indian Kingdoms that they had a client relationship with. Dalhousie expanded that power. He claimed that in the case of an adopted heir, the British government had to ratify that adoption. And if they didn't, the kingdom was going to pass to the British East India Company because the royal family had lapsed. Guess how many heirs actually got approved? Probably none. Certainly, Jhansi was not one of them. So when Gangadir Rao died in 1853, Dalhousie refused to acknowledge the boy as the legal heir to the throne. Instead, the British took control of Jhansi. Lakshmi Bai got a pension. She was allowed to keep the palace as her personal residence. The boy inherited the Raja's personal estate, but he didn't get the kingdom. He didn't get the title. Lakshmi
0: Bai is not going to settle for that. Everyone, including the all the local British officials, are on her side and writing letters and furious, saying, no, she will be a brilliant regent.
2: Mm. This is
0: not fair. Dalhousie wants Jansi, and he's going to get
2: it. Mm.
1: Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe
0: that they can be and do anything. Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your doorstep. So how do they do it? Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEM activities and more. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription.
1: It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children.
0: <laughs> Check them out now at girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. But she is not ready to mount a revolution.
2: She didn't rise up in revolt. She didn't rebel. She took it into the British legal system. She lost her case. And she appealed. And she lost her appeal. And she appealed. She continued to do this for a number of years. Meanwhile discontent was building in India, and the place that was most immediate was in the ranks of the East India Company's own army. They have made
0: a series of pretty poor decisions in managing their army, because every normal company, first of all, has a standing Mm -hmm. army. Right, of course.
1: Any self-respecting business needs an army.
2: To understand what happens next, you need to know a few things about the East India Company's army, because even though the officers were British and the training was British and the weapons were British, most of the soldiers were South Asian. Beginning in about 1856, the British started making a series of bad policy decisions related to their soldiers, things that a lot of Indians saw as an attack on the religious beliefs of those soldiers, both Hindu and Muslim. And the final straw came in 1857, when the East India Company issued its army the hottest new weapon, which was the infield rifle. Now, the rifle used greased cartridges, and to use them, you had to bite them off. And a rumor started to go through the army that the cartridges were greased with pork and beef fat.
0: This, obviously, uh, is a problem for both Hindu and Muslim soldiers. Yes. (laughs) And a pretty enormous problem, one that is... (laughs) personal pollution on the level of getting you kicked out of your
1: society-type serious. (laughs) Of all the oblivious moves to offend absolutely everyone. And (laughs) even
0: when it's brought to their attention, the officers don't respond. They dismiss these concerns.
2: The British officers were really slow to respond to those rumors. But eventually, they started to recognize that they had a serious problem. They tried to combat the rumors, and finally, they arranged for the men to receive ungreased cartridges that they could then grease themselves with beeswax and vegetable oil. But it was too late. Um, the damage was already done.
0: More rumors are exploding all across India that they've ground up bones into the flour that oh. there are dead pigs in the water uh. supply and. Just the complete obliviousness to the seriousness of these allegations is stunning. Yeah. But it's a really good insight into how powerful they believed they were.
1: Yeah. And also, though most of these rumors are not true, the fact that they spread so far and everybody was willing to believe them, it reminds me of, you know, Marie Antoinette's Let Them Eat Cake. She never said that, but... It doesn't even matter now because everybody yeah. believed it. <laughs> it's like the people are expressing their rage at how out of touch the mm. authority figures are.
0: Yeah, and, they, and they're really convinced that all of this is part of a mounted campaign to force all of the soldiers to convert to Christianity. Mm. Yeah. It's not just disrespect, it's sort of a threat of a fundamental change to your entire way of life and culture. Mm -hmm. Very stupid, shockingly stupid (laughs) for people who believed that they should run the world.
2: (laughs) Ultimately, the result was mutiny. It began at a military garrison called Meerut, which was about 50 miles from Delhi. A Saturday morning, May 9th, 1857. Eighty-five soldiers
0: refused to use these cartridges.
2: They were immediately court-martialed. They were stripped of their uniforms. They were jailed and in irons. The next morning, while the British officers and their families were at church, the three regiments stationed at Meirut mutinied. They stormed the jail to free the jailed men. Then they murdered the British officers and their families. And they headed toward Delhi, where the last Mughal emperor still ruled. That's important to remember because at this point, India is not a possession of the British crown. The British East India Company is there as a trading company, and the lands they rule, they rule as a vassal of the Mughal emperor. So even though the British are the most powerful force, there's a higher authority, and that is what the mutineers are calling on when they head toward Delhi. And this
0: wave of mutinies and revolts and small revolutions eventually sparks a continent-wide revolution. It's not a unified effort, but it is everywhere. And suddenly the East India Company and the British government are battling a war on every front
2: all at once. Other garrisons mutinied. But in addition, there were thousands of people outside the army who had their own reasons to resent the British East India Company rule. The British had made other social and land reforms that betrayed a deep lack of understanding. And that, again, seemed either like an attack on religion or an attack on traditional leaders' powers. That spark hit Jauncey on June 6th. The East India Company troops that were stationed there mutinied. Two days later, they killed the remaining British population in the city. It was about 60 people, about half of them women and children. Whew. And they
0: just completely eliminate the British population and... Off, the troops go to Delhi to join up with the larger movement at the court of
2: the Mughal emperor. The British government, which was centered in Calcutta, immediately assumed that Lakshmi Bai was behind the uprising. She has a very
0: obvious and very real grievance against the East India Company. And so they assumed, of course, this was her. Yeah. Even though there's no evidence at all that she is behind it or supports it in any way. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, even as late as June 16th, she was writing to the British authority, giving her account of what had happened and asking him for instructions. And the British authorities gave her permission to do whatever she needed to do to restore order in Johncy. Now, she's not anything at this point she's supposed to be the regent and they have deposed her but they still know that she is the de facto power in the kingdom and that she could
2: probably get things under control and then they actually forwarded her letter to calcutta with a note attached saying that the letter agreed with everything he had learned from other sources and it didn't do anything to change their minds And unfortunately, she made things worse. Soon after the mutiny, Lakshmi Bai was attacked by two Rajas from neighboring kingdoms, and also by a distant relative with some vague claims to the throne of Jhansi. They all obviously saw this crisis as a great chance to do a little empire building of their own. And in her efforts to defend herself, she made two big mistakes. First, she recruited a defensive army from the men who were still in Jaunsi. Unfortunately, it turned out that that included some known mutineers. Mistake number one. She also made the very logical decision to build some defensive alliances with other neighboring rajas two of whom subsequently rebelled. Mistake number two.
0: She truly was not involved in any of this, and she was desperately trying to keep things stable and under control in this kingdom because her goal is still that she wants her son to be king.
1: Mm. She is
0: not in on this sort of giant revolutionary effort. She just wants things to go back to where they were. Uh Uh-huh. But the authorities are convinced she's responsible, and this totally cements their belief that she is in
2: open rebellion against them. You know, the authorities in Calcutta already believed she was responsible. Things she did to defend herself made that even worse. And in January 1858, they sent an army under the leadership of Major General Sir Hugh Rose to retake Johnson. Now, as late as February, there are letters from the Rani saying that she's ready to turn the administration of Johnson over to the British as soon as they get there. Send an army Hmm. and
0: I'll just turn everything over to them. But they don't believe her. And so when Rose arrives, he sends a message as they are approaching the city letting her know that he is there to besiege the city. Wow. And if he catches her, she will be executed as a rebel.
1: Wow. She's just
0: waiting to turn it over. She's on their side.
2: (laughs) Does she switch sides?
1: I would switch
0: sides. Well, of course now,
2: obviously. Yeah. Under the circumstances, she decided to resist. Uh, You really can't blame her.
0: This is baffling to me. What on earth is he doing? Why would you say this? Why would you send in a message Mm. announcing that you were going to execute her? How does that help you? Either he is 100% totally convinced that she really is with the rebel forces. Yeah. Or I, I, I can't help but wonder if he is trying to foment... A revolution. if he's mm. trying to get her to fight back because that will justify completely ousting her from power.
1: Up yeah. to this point,
0: she's still been this legal thorn in the side and she has moral authority and everyone wants her yeah. to rule. It, that's very convenient for the British mm-hmm. if the rightful regent is suddenly just a dangerous mutineer. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me at all why he's doing this.
1: Oh, I was just thinking, like, good old-fashioned militant hubris and yeah, patriarchy, violence. That's probably just me expecting far too much Yeah, reasonable yeah. thinking. From Rose <laughs> is just a guy's job is to go in and smash things and yeah. be the boss.
2: By all accounts, she put up a vigorous defense, but by March 30th, it was clear that she was not going to be able to hold the city. By that point, most of her guns were already damaged. Some of the fortress walls had also been damaged. So on April 3rd, the army broke in through the city walls. They seized the palace, which was her residence. They began an assault on the fortress.
0: But they don't capture Lakshmi Bai. Ooh! The story goes that as the British army and General Rose breach the city walls, Lakshmi Bai straps her son to her back, mounts her horse and jumps from the walls of the fort on horseback to escape the besieging army. The horse dies from the impact of the fall, but Lakshmi Bai and her son survive, and with four other companions, they flee into the night.
1: Wow!
0: Now, who knows how much, if any, of this is true. Mm. We know that her son at this point is 10 years old.
1: I've got a 10-year-old. I still carry him barely. <laughs> I could give him a piggyback ride. Yeah, maybe
0: that's what's happening. <laughs> and maybe he's on the horse behind her. (laughs) Yeah.
2: The five of them rode through the night and the next day they reached the fortress of Kalpi, where there were already two important leaders of the resistance. And they were in fact leaders that the British felt were some of the biggest villains of the resistance. At that point, Lakshmi Bai openly allied herself with the rebel forces. And they continue to fight. But through May and early June, they're defeated over and over again. And they retreat from one stronghold to another. Finally, they reach the fortress of Gwalior, which was a stronghold that was strategically important to both sides. And the Raja of Gwalior had maintained a certain neutrality up to that point, but his men decided to join with the rebels. So at that point, they've got a strategically significant stronghold. They've got a larger army than they've had for a while. They are a force to be reckoned with. On June 16th, Rose attacked. Lakshmi Bai goes
0: riding into battle, leading her army against the British. Wow. At some point in this battle, she is shot from her horse and killed. Mm. And with the loss of Gwalior, essentially, the Indian Rebellion of 1857 is over. Hmm. This is one of those stories in history where the end just feels inevitable. There, All of the choices that everyone else has made have given her so oh. few options that it really doesn't feel like there is any other way that this mm. could have ended for her. She really had no other choices.
1: Yeah, good point. Seems like her hand was forced. Yeah, yeah I mean... She could have surrendered
0: the city and gotten executed.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but that's <laughs> you know, that's not really a choice.
1: Interesting that you can become like a, a hero of a rebellion on accident. You just yeah, the- like get forced into this role and then and then fate yeah. just rolls out in front of you, and there you are.
0: And And now she is sort of the symbol of Indian independence, right? She is the icon of the fight for independence for India from Britain. And she becomes this huge looming figure in history that she becomes the focal point of all of these different narratives about Indian independence. And her story takes on this huge other dimension that it didn't have in life which uh, Pam Droller points out she would have been baffled by because she did not want Indian independence. She wanted her son to be king of Jhansi. Yeah. She was not interested at all in a unified India or in removing the British from her kingdom. She just wanted her son to be the figurehead through whom the East India Trading Company ran its business. Yeah. Man. So... What a strange twist to mm-hmm. this story, right? I always am totally fascinated with the way that history will make your story into what it needs. Yes. If your story is convenient,
1: we will turn it into Absolutely. the thing that we're looking for right now. Absolutely. And that's that's why our narratives change through time. Because yeah. later on, they'll need Lakshmi Bai to be something different. And the story mm-hmm. about her will change, always rooted in facts, but then, you know, just the, the slightly different polish on it that will spin hmm. the story this way or that to be the story that we need right now.
2: The British newspapers trumpeted that fall and her death. They called her
0: the Jezebel of India, <laughs> which is, doesn't, that's... <laughs> Classic. That's confusing. That doesn't <laughs> even make sense. It's totally unrelated. <laughs> you know, it's just a, a all-purpose insult, I guess. Right. Woman we don't like. But General Rose, who ousted her from Jhansi and threatened to execute her on sight, had nothing
2: but praise for Lakshmi Bai.
1: Fascinating.
2: He had previously compared her to Joan of Arc, which is... of amazing, because by the 19th century that phrase had become shorthand for a gallant national defense led by a woman. When he reported her death to his commanding officer, this is what he wrote. The Rani was remarkable for her bravery, cleverness, and perseverance. Her generosity to her subordinates was unbounded. These qualities, combined with her rank, rendered her the most dangerous of all the rebel leaders. Although she was a lady, she was the bravest and best military leader of the rebels. A man among the mutineers. Wow.
0: (laughs) Now obviously annoying now to Uh hear that. But that is what a compliment. High praise. Yes. And I think also a pretty good backhanded slap at all of the other men. Yeah. Right. That this girl was better than all of you. Mm-hmm. But he genuinely seems to be impressed with her. He f- finds her actually praiseworthy, which is baffling
1: to me and so yeah. fascinating. There's more there that just hints that there's so much more yeah. under the surface of this story. I think in the
0: end, the the lesson is stories are important. (laughs) We keep coming back to this. Your story and the way it's told might end up having a much bigger impact Mm -hmm. than any of the things that you did. Your legacy might be entirely
1: independent of you. It's interesting because when we talk about people being remembered or forgotten in history, that it really comes down to the first biographer, the first champion. Mm. And in this case, her first champion is her nemesis. Her enemy, yeah. Yeah. Right after she dies, he creates the legacy. Ah. Yeah. So consider that. Consider your enemies, listeners. They might be yeah. your first biographers.
2: Be careful. Today, Lakshmi Bhai is a national heroine. She is revered. You know, there are prints of the queen on horseback that can be bought all over India. There are statues, and her story has been told over and over again. First in ballads and folk songs, but later in novels and movies and the Indian equivalent of classic comics. She's just this source of inspiration. A man among the mutineers.
0: Huge thanks to Pam Toller. On our website, whatshournamepodcast.com, you can find links to her incredible book, Women Warriors, as well as pictures, resources, and more. There you can also become a sponsor of the podcast for as little as a dollar a month and get access to all kinds of great thank you gifts like trading cards, cross-stitch patterns, laptop stickers, even your own shout-out in a future episode. Music in this episode was provided by Sumitra Lahiri,
1: Shailendra Misha, and Kevin McLeod. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson,
0: and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.